I don't think money makes people superficial. I think money makes you more of who you are. I went out to a nice dinner once with an investor who was going to put half a million dollars into a deal, treated the servers like absolute trash. At the end, I told them that we are never going to do business together. This is such an important topic because it's how you do the little things is how you do the big thing, right? Whatever your core values are, are really important. And I talk about that a lot with like picking business partners too. Whoever you work with, you're going to make similar decisions in good and bad scenarios. Welcome to the Road to 100 podcast, a show for those of you who are out there building empires. We're your hosts, Cody Littlewood and Pasha Esfendieri. Together, we'll embark on the journey to the coveted 100 million mark, as well as striving for excellence in every aspect of our lives. Here at the Road to 100, we believe that true success goes beyond financial prosperity. That's why we bring you insightful conversations with top entrepreneurs and trailblazers who share their unfiltered experiences in building wealth, as well as cultivating fulfilling relationships and maintaining optimal health. This podcast is perfect for ambitious entrepreneurs, health enthusiasts, and anyone seeking genuine and transformative insights from those who dare to go all out. Welcome to The Road to 100, and we will see you at the finish line. Okay, guys, we have another great episode. We have a very dear friend of mine, actually my first real estate coach and mentor, David Tupin. David is uh, based out of Austin. At the age of 20, he bought his first apartment complex. And now by the age of 27, he's either purchased or developed over $120 million worth of commercial multifamily real estate. Also starting a real estate software company, just a badass in all the sense, man. Happy to have you on board. Uh, happy to have you here and happy to get into uh, a little bit of who you are and what you're up to thanks man you make me sound pretty cool <laughs> i'm a good hype man you know like i appreciate you you're a great hype man <laughs> i could never be like the guy with with the mic but i'm a really good hype man but yeah david i mean like look the reason why we really wanted you on here because you're just one of those guys that had such a clear vision from the get-go it seems like from very early on and you really have been driving successful outcomes your whole life and i just really wanted to highlight you and please tell the audience a little bit about your past and you know and where you're at now. I guess I've always been a little bit of an entrepreneur. Started my first business at 13. I'll make a long story short, but you know, landscaping company. Come around to college. Um, I thought at first I really wanted to go like corporate finance route. You know, like what's the quickest way to make a million dollars a year? I wanted to be wealthy. I wanted to be successful, right? And so I was like, oh man, investment banking or whatever, right? And then pretty quickly after I did probably eight, nine months of internships and investment banking in college, I just realized that, you know, I want to own my own business. I don't want to work for the man. And during that time, I started listening to podcasts. This was like 2015, 2016 before podcasts were really a big thing. And, you know, I stumbled upon like Bigger Pockets and other real estate podcasts and I just got hooked. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And at that point, I'm like, I'm all in. Like, this sounds sweet. You don't need a degree to do it. You know, I begrudgingly ended up finishing uh, college. I, I tried to drop out, but parents wouldn't let me. I bought my first apartment building my junior year of college and I haven't stopped since. I've done a little over 1,400 units, commercial space, retail, self storage, a little bit of everything. And also, started a software company two years ago called Real Estate Lab, where uh, we help commercial investors build out their financial models, underwrite deals and track their acquisition pipeline so that they can close more properties and buy more investments. So I live and breathe real estate. It's all I do. And yeah, glad Posh that we got connected. 
several years back and you've always been been a, a good friend and good to me. So yeah, excited to be on your show finally here. Where did you work in investment banking out of curiosity? Yeah, I did a little bit of time at uh, Deloitte, uh, which is one of the big four. And then I also worked at a boutique banking firm uh, in Michigan as well. It's where I'm from originally is Michigan. Awesome. Awesome. I always thought the same thing that you did, like investment investment banking. It just sounds like this awesome, like that. that's the best title, right? Like I'm an investment banking, right? And it sounds, it sounds like you put the two like most money words next to each other, investment and banking. And it sounds awesome. And then I realized that investment bankers are just glorified brokers. You're a broker. Yeah. hundred percent. And they do well. They do well. Yeah. Yeah. They do well. Did you get started just with your own money? Did you build up your own portfolio? Do you still own everything now that you're in software? I mean, what was that kind of journey like? Yeah. I guess your first question. Um, no, I, I had no money. I was like everybody else in college, right? Paying for my meal plan and rent. I, uh, you know, didn't have like family that invested with me or anything like that from the get. It was a grind uh, to basically raise money from investors with no track record at 21 years old. So <laughs> it was it really sucked. How did you get your first investor? Well, so first I focused on the deal, which I give this advice to everybody. I mean, everybody's trying to figure it all out from the start. But I mean, you, without a deal, you have nothing. You don't have anything to put in front of people. You don't have anything to raise money for. So I'm like, all right, find a deal. So I found a little 12 unit apartment building. I needed just shy of 200K to buy it. The bank gave us the rest. And I found all those investors through like local meetups networking, like real estate meetups, RIAs, stuff like that. Like just going to events and telling people what I was doing and starting to build a little bit of a list. And then when I got the deal under contract, finally, it's like, uh, you know, no, 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 no. Yes. No, 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 no. Yes. Like, you know, you're going through like 10 people just to get one 25K investor to trust me. Oh, they were just taking flyers on a young guy that had the drive. hundred percent. Yeah. He just got a vibe and I'm willing to take a 25 grand flyer on him. Correct. And it's probably because I used to wear a suit every day. They're like, all right, this kid's maybe legit. So <laughs> a suit every day. <laughs> More suits for me, man. I mean, I have a baby face as is. So imagine me at 20. I mean, you know, I'm not sure if the suit accentuates a baby face or what, you know, because it's like such a contrast <laughs> or whether it helps. Yeah, maybe it made it work. Who knows? It, it worked out though, man. It worked. Yeah. What What year was that again? 2016. Yeah. And then you just, from there on, I, I mean, I'm sure everyone who said no to you was probably thinking like, damn, I should have got in with him. Oh yeah. We crushed on deal one, deal two. I mean, deal, my third deal, I almost doubled the investor's money in like 18 months. I mean, it was, uh, you know, and just kept going. So I've got investors that invested in my first deal ever that still invest with me today on every deal. So it's been, it's been really cool, man. Yeah. I've got some good, good people. I'm fortunate. So I invested with you as well. And you, you are one of those people that, uh, I would always invest with. You're always great in communication. You know, your numbers. And that's another thing about you too, is you created your own pro forma that you were able to really, uh, license out or to sell out because that's like your foundation, right? Is, is just knowing your numbers. And that's all you did that. Cause we had Kevin Mills on who's another buddy of ours and he was just like he got really good at that rep repetitious boredom and you remind me of that you were just doing the repetitious boredom act that no one else wanted to get amazing at right yeah nobody wants to master the number side of things so everybody relies on somebody else to understand or know them and so you either have to hire an analyst or or you rely on like really basic back of the napkin stuff which for some deals like don't get me wrong you can you can make it work like if it's enough of a slam dunk you know it's going to do well but when you're raising money or going to banks like they need to know that you're legit you have a good business plan and without without a good financial model or pro forma it's hard to sell that you know i'm normally pretty accurate on what we project is what we hit that's awesome man so you're still investing even though you got your software thing you're still buying deals and i guess what's kind of your goal with your real estate portfolio 
portfolio, like where are you, where are you looking to go? So now you own, you said you own 1400 doors. You have some retail stuff as well. Currently, what's kind of your goal? Are you aggressively out in the marketplace right now, trying to buy deals, trying to grow your portfolio, or are you a little bit more opportunistic and as deals come uh, you know, you'll do a deal here and there. Kind of what's your what's your general goal and where are you trying to get to? Yeah, I would say I'm I'm leaning more towards aggressive on the real estate side of things. I mean, my so- the software company does take up about half my time at this point, which is why I've had to really scale up my team the last couple of years, which has been great. But yeah, I'm I'm an opportunistic buyer, but I am aggressively hunting deals. I, I like to buy three to five home run or grand slam deals every year. I don't like to just syndicate average stuff that's on the market. Like I go for off market slam dunks. What what size? Anything from like two to fifteen million. Normally, like two to ten is our average. Because nowadays, I don't really syndicate much. I joint venture, so you know, we'll buy a deal where we need a million and a half or two million. I'll put in two fifty or five hundred, and I'll get like one or two people to put up the other million, million five or two million. So I'm I'm doing like smaller numbers of investors, larger check amounts, and it gives us a lot more flexibility than the syndication. Which don't get me wrong, I've done a lot of. They have their place, time and place for those, but I have the flexibility of holding very long-term now on specific deals, refinancing, 1031-ing, just stuff that in a syndication you don't do because you're normally turning those full cycle returning profits back to the investors. So I like the flexibility of, of doing it that way. So it's kind of my preference. And that's why I haven't like scaled up to doing like 150, 200, 250. Like I think the biggest deal I did was like 200 units. Uh, but I haven't continued scaling past that just because I love buying. Dude, send me a good 25 unit or 30 unit deal, you know, where I can buy it for a million five and flip it for three and a half a year later. You know, there's just so much money in doing this. I think there's a lot of alpha in general just because of the space. I mean, well, first off, you're going to find very few owner operator, you know, mom, sorry, mom, mom and pop owner operators in like 100 up unit places, marketplace. So you're going to find mostly fairly professionally managed. I mean, this is not always the case, but you're going to find mostly fairly professionally managed. They're very rarely self-managing, right? So they've at least got a professional management team in there. You know, I've always thought there was a, probably a fair amount amount of there's probably a fair amount of home runs in that space that you're playing in versus in the space that you're you know that you're playing in at a hundred unit plus just because so much of the yield's been wiped off the map and you know you're really not dealing you're very rarely finding a an extremely distressed deal in that space. It's just a, it's just a different type of seller, different type of ops teams, et cetera. Hundred percent, yeah. And don't get me wrong, I won't go to like eight or ten units, but unless it was like a steal and I would just you know buy it myself. But with those size deals, like fifty to hundred unit, there's just such a sweet spot there for the mom and pop, like the upper end of the mom and pop deals. And we could just you know we could get in there and buy them at just a huge discount. So yeah, love that space. Less professional brokers with less professional buyers lists. I mean, all sorts of owners that'll actually answer the phone. Yeah. A lot of times they prefer to do deals off market. I talked to a woman last week and she's like, I won't do a deal through a broker. She's like, make me not like, <laughs> if you're a broker, I'm not doing it. I'm not listing it. I want to do off market. I love you. You're my favorite. Did we just become best friends? Yeah. Did we just become best friends? And then I lowballed her and she, she ignored me. So it happens. <laughs> yeah. Apparently not. Apparently not best friends. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, not best friends. No, definitely not. But one day, you know, when she gets realistic. No, I, I think there's. I think that's what you do, Pasha, as well, right? You guys are mostly. I think we we all have, have a little bit of a different strategy. We're usually much larger deals, but I think there is. That's the same thing that you're doing, Pasha, right? Like you're trying to find something that's not big enough that a professional manager or professional owner is going to be owning it. 
Yeah. I think at the end of the day, what you have to do as an entrepreneur, you have to uniquely position your company in some way, shape, or form. Like with what you're doing, Cody, you're doing such volume, you're able to get your home runs because you're doing so many, so much outreach, right? More than I would say almost probably 98% or 99% of all other operators out there. We wade through a lot of shit. Yeah, you really do. And yeah, for what we do, I mean, we go after secondary tertiary market deals where there's less competition. We stay above most mom and pop buyers who just want to get in the market, have a passive income. And we stay underneath institutional money where they don't want to touch anything under $10 million, right? And they only want to touch big markets. So we really only have about one, two, maybe big operators like ourselves. I say big operators for at least the space that we're in really competing against us. And so even though the demand is there for the mobile home park, on a business front, there's only probably like one or two more other operators out there like us. Because there are a lot of people who JV and want to buy the kind of deals that we go after. But yeah, we're definitely positioned. We're only buying from mom and pop sellers. To date, we haven't bought from another operator. It's awesome. We love it. Yeah, which is exactly what you want to do. Like you buy from another, like you don't want to buy deals from me. <laughs> That's exactly right. If you buy deals from me, you're okay. Like I'm not, you shouldn't like, you know, so I, I will put it on the market. I will get the highest price for it. I'm going to clean it up like wash your car before you sell it type of deal. Like it's going to look really nice and I'm going to max out the price because I'm looking for the highest return possible. Yeah. And I want to get into this about what the REL lab is doing, but something I think about is just like, what's the trajectory of what's happening, right? At least in my sector, and I know your guys' sector, all of these deals will end up getting bought out. And I really think that that accelerated with the internet, with social media, everyone's learning about this. The Rod Cleef event where I met David, right? So many people are now having all these online tools because you can learn how to be a mobile home park investor. You can learn how to be uh, any, any kind of commercial real estate investor you want, and they teach you how to syndicate and they teach you how to JV and how to find these deals. And so many people are coming into it. I was like, damn, like we got to, we got to do this now, right? Cause the, it's keep the cap rates are compressing. We're going to keep attacking and getting these deals. And once it's in an operator system, it's going to be sold to another operator later on. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, the, here's the thing, like I'd say the average age of commercial investors is trending down, right? And it's never going to be like super low, but it's trending down. This used to be like an older person's game, right? You couldn't get into this game in your twenties or thirties, right? People just wouldn't you couldn't do it. Like what, what business do I have buying a $16 million, 200 unit, you know, when I'm like 25 years old, no business, but we do it, you know, and, and now that we have the internet and the ability to go and tap into these investor channels and get, get the deal out there where, you know, 10, 20 years ago, that would have been extremely difficult, 20, 30 years ago, that would have been extremely difficult to do. So plus the cool thing about this business, like in, in multifamily, there's 22 million apartments in the country. Every year we need another 275,000 units just to meet demand of housing needs. So this is an ever growing business. Population is not going down. This business is always growing. There's always more deals being added to the market. And there's always deals that hit that vintage where they need to be traded right at some point. And so it's never going to slow down. It's only speeding up. And the more people get into it, the bigger the game gets. So it's a cool business to be in. We see a lot of deals, um, even in our bigger space, where like somebody came in 10 years ago, did a value add, you know, turned it into a great apartment, but then they just didn't spend anything on it for 10 years because they were cash flowing. They made great cash flow. They make great returns. I mean, they still sold it for a boatload of money just because of the, you know, natural rent increases. And they also probably benefited over the past decade from cap rate compression, but, but, and, and interest rate compression, but regardless, right. It was ready for another value add and you guys bought it and brought it up again. Yeah. And it's the cycle, man. And that happens. I mean, they raise the money up front. They're not going to go back mid hold and raise more money. They just typically don't do that unless they refine and do it. But like, yeah, it was prime for you guys to come in and do, do it again every, every five to 10 years. 
So shift into your to your software business. What uh, what exactly is it? And it, you, I think you kind of alluded to it earlier in like what your secret sauce has been over these years. And I imagine at some point along the way, yeah. So so anyways, what is your kind of software business? What does it do? And I want to add in there real quick. What inspired you to go from real estate? You're doing well. You're young. You're you're making more than most, right? Most Americans that it's a giant. But then what inspired you to be like? I'm gonna go create this other thing that I don't really have a tech background. You know. Yeah, zero tech background. Made quite a few mistakes along the way, but uh, but it's going really well, which is cool. Um, so I built a spreadsheet early on, like this is like back in college when I was just starting, and then it grew and grew and grew and grew, and it became kind of you know semi institutional quality model. Nowadays, it's for sure an institutional quality model, and I put it up on my website, and then like a year and a half, I sold like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of a spreadsheet at two hundred and fifty bucks a pop. So like tons of people were buying it, and it's pretty widely used now in the industry. Uh, and so I'm like, man, Excel's great. And I'm making good money doing this. It's just side money, right? But what else can I do with software that could really improve this? And so now we have a full web application where investors can sign up. And if you're a business, you can you know invite your whole team on and you can uh, track your pipeline of deals that you're looking at. So you can manage your pipeline. You can create financial models connected to the software through uh, Google Sheets. We still use spreadsheets because institutional investors still want to use spreadsheets. And uh, we have a parsing engine, so you can upload T12s, rent rolls. We read those, pull the data out, put it right into the model. We take data that we have as well, data that we've aggregated and data that we pay for, and we actually use it to pre-populate a lot of your assumptions in the model. So it's cool is you pull up a model and you upload your T12, your rent roll, and you create it, and then it's already pre-filled and saves you like 30, 45 minutes of having to go transfer all that data over into the model. So it saves you a bunch of time, got good data, it's pretty accurate. And so we're just helping people underwrite deals quicker, right? And then obviously we've got a we got a really strong like document storage system. I don't know if you guys obviously know this, like every deal you buy, you probably got like two, three, four hundred documents associated with it from like third party reports to insurance stuff to all the financing applications to whatever. And so uh, we've got a cool, pretty robust uh, document storage as well. And you can create LOIs right in the software. A lot of cool features. We bring public records to every property you add to your database. We've got rent comps coming soon sales comps so we're trying to bring like all the things you normally have to do where you go to five six seven different websites to do your underwriting and analysis we're bringing it all to our site so you don't have to leave the site you just do it all right from there the reason why i love this so much what you're saying is a the market trend is everyone is starting to learn how to do this everyone's trying to get into to real estate investing and then secondly you're saving people time. That's what I love. If you can create a product that saves people time, it's going to be useful, you know? And and that was the hardest part for to get into the game was like the underwriting. Oh shit, do I have my numbers down right? Do oh shit, like and then anytime I would do the pro forma, then I would ask somebody like, "Hey, can you like make sure that I did this pro forma correct?" And so you're like you're really helping. So I love that. So how is that going? Like it just seems like a such a big undertaking. How's it going? It's good. Yeah, we We've got uh, we've got about 80 paid users. I mean, we literally just launched it in March of 2023. We had our beta last year and then we launched it like three months ago. So we've got about 80 uh, paid users and I think we'll be at the 150, 200 mark by the end of the year. Our goal is right now just to helping as many as many companies as we can start a new system, right? Because everybody's used to Dropbox or Google Sheets and you just copy and paste your Excel model. Most people don't really have like a nice clean out version of it so you know it's got leftover data from other uses it's got errors in the equations it's got breaks and like 
when you're making multi-million dollar decisions, like you need a clean system that's organized. And uh, and then, yeah, on top of that, we're saving people a boatload of time. So it's for the analysts of this world. And if you happen to be a decision maker and analyst, uh, you know, it's for you too. But the cool thing is, as well, it's for any asset class. So we allow users to upload their own model. So let's say you have a multifamily model of your own. You can upload it. We'll connect it to our parsing engine so that you can use yours. You don't need to use ours. And then uh, you can upload any type of model too. If you're a single family investor, fix and flipper, you have your own spreadsheet you use, upload it. It integrates with our system, self, uh, self storage, mobile home parks. Like you can use it for any asset class. So you're able to use it across anything, which is cool. That's awesome. Cody, Cody kind of did like the inverse of, of what you did. He, he started tech companies and then. Oh, cool. Just recently, and now he's in, in, in full-time real estate where you went real estate to tech. I, I'm interested to, to hear your thoughts and like what you think the differences are between operating those two different types of businesses. I mean, the, the great thing about, well, I could be wrong. I, I don't know. I guess it depends. I was a I was a programmer. So I always used to think that the great thing about digital businesses was how little capital is involved to get started. But if you're not a programmer, people people often come to one of the businesses I own is a services business and people come to us and they're like, they want to get something quoted. And before they even start, like if it's not a professional business, like most of our customers, most of the customers in that, in that large business are, you know, big uh, kind of fortune 500. So they kind of understand the cost. But when it's like a, an entrepreneur that comes to us and it's like wants to build something, I'm like, I always tell them you're building a piece of real estate. You really are. So think hundreds of thousands of dollars to build this piece of real estate. Um, millions. Millions. Oh no, absolutely millions. I'm trying to kind of like water it down a little bit for a early MVP. And it costs twice as much and takes twice as long as you think. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just like building it. It's actually just like building a piece of real estate. Oh man, I love how my first uh, the first quote I got from this company back in Michigan is a complete waste of time. But they quoted me like I don't know like forty grand to build an MVP. I ended up spending sixty, and it was completely broken. Didn't work. So I was like flushed down the toilet. Right of my own money, and then I found a better. I went and back to the drawing board, did a bunch of research, interviewed like ten or fifteen development shops, picked one. They said it would cost like you know three or four hundred thousand for a true MVP. Everybody else quoted me two hundred. It ended up costing six hundred, and now you know we're well over a million at this point. I've got you know almost a million dollars of my own money into it, so I'm heavily, heavily, heavily invested. It's my baby, and you know we're about to do a two million dollar seed round right now. So I've got several VCs interested. I'm going back to our original investors, seeing if they want to re up, and yeah we're growing man if you got good traction that's amazing you got great traction yeah so what do you what, what do you find different about the space than real estate and how do you like it in comparison yeah i'm i'm a lot less i mean i'm, I'm very hands-on with the company but like i don't code so i'm not i'm an, i know enough at this point to be deadly so it's interesting like putting the right this this business is so much more about putting the right people in place to grow and to build it. And then real estate, like I know it in and out. I could, yeah, I could do every aspect of it with my eyes closed at this point. So it's like, I'm very hands-on with real estate on the transaction side, like putting the deal together, working with legal, raising capital, asset management. The only thing I don't do is property management. And, you know, it's very different tasks. So my real estate team is me and two other people. My software team, which has only been around for a third of the time, is already up to nine people. So, you know, it's just a different, it's a different game, different pace, a lot more payroll, but higher, higher salaries for sure. Higher salaries for sure. But like you said, Cody, you're like building a piece of real estate. Like the way I think about it is I'm building this software platform, which can now take on an unlimited number of units or users, right? Like you build a hundred unit apartment complex forever. It's only going to have a hundred rentable units and it's maxed out at whatever rents you can achieve for that. With software platform, 
I can now bring on 1,000, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 users, and I can charge whatever the market will bear, right? And it's unlimited. As long as there's users that want to use it, we can hold that capacity. So it's like an unlimited, I think of it as like an unlimited apartment building. And then it sells on a multiple of a top line revenue and not net operating income or EBITDA, right? It sells at a multiple. Top line revenue. So it's a really cool model, way more difficult and highly risky too, right? I mean, how many startups fail? Most of them. It's logarithmically scalable, which is amazing, instead of linearly scalable, which is awesome. But, and it is, you're absolutely right, right? The multiples are crazy. Although the multiples in real estate have been a little crazy. I mean, if you look at a, if you look at a five cap, a five cap is a 20X multiple. Five cap is a 20X on that, which is 10X on revenue normally. So yeah. Is, is 10X multiple typically on revenue in, in like your kind of business? Yeah, it could be anywhere from like four to 10, right? But then you get into the unicorns, which could be 20, 30, 40, 50, 100. Depends on growth, I think, uh, generally in software too. It, growth is so huge. Like if he's doing if he's doing 2X a year consistently or rule of 40, he'll probably get a 20X, 30X multiple on revenue. Really? I, I don't know, maybe not now. I think we could do that too, 2X a year. Well, or rule of 40, right? The rule of 40 is like really big for VCs. What is that? I'm going to, I'm going to mess it up. So I'm going to look it up really quick, but it is if the company's revenue growth rate were to add it to its profit margin, the total should exceed 40%. Okay. Gotcha. So yeah. So year over year revenue growth plus yeah. And rate of profit margin growth. Okay, cool. And if it equals 40% or a better, uh, they generally view that as like a healthy um, as, a, as a healthy kind of SaaS startup. And obviously those multiples have probably changed a lot recently. Uh, however, you just got to wait. I mean, you're just getting started. So you you won't sell till the next bull cycle. You won't sell till the next bull cycle anyways. Yeah, we may never sell it. We maybe just kill it and keep going, make it a billion dollar company. We'll see, yeah, I guess we'll see once we get there. So. Right, so I got a question for you, David, because you're obviously a lot younger than you know Cody and I. And what I would love to know is that you handled your success very well, right? But there's got to be, I'm sure there's got to be outside forces. You're young. I'm sure you want to go out and enjoy what you've made for yourself, right? Because I try to imagine myself being 25 and having a few million dollars to my name, right? And so how do you handle it? I know you have a good head on your shoulders, but do you feel like there's outside forces? Do you feel like there's friends that are trying to pull you to go spend your money on ridiculous things or like, so how do you handle the success being so young? I mean, I would say in general, I'm pretty good with my money. Like I, I probably reinvest like 80% of it. I feel like with my friend group, it's normally me that's like, let's go on the trips. Let's do fun stuff. I don't party a lot though. Like I don't go out and drink a bunch like a couple times a month maybe. But you know, at the same time I do, I enjoy, I enjoy everything that I've built. I drive a nice car. I, I like living in a nice place. Like I like enjoying those types of things in life. But I also like, you know, I'm so focused. I don't really let any anything like overly influenced me one way or the other. I think the biggest influence nowadays are social media for people. And as long as you can hold that off and not really care like what other people think and try and be superficial, which I think is just the worst thing that happens to people who get success and then they lose it. I waited several years, like I waited several years after I was a millionaire to buy my first like $150,000 car, right? Like it wasn't like got my first 100K and you go and spend it all. I was definitely, I always try to live way behind where I'm at. You know, I don't think money makes people superficial. I think money makes you more of who you are. So if you already have like insecurity or you need to crave that money will make you more of that. But it's always, it just makes you more, if you're an asshole, you can be more of an asshole. Like, yeah, that's exactly right. If you're generous, you just can be more generous. I agree. I've seen a lot of that. I've seen, I think there also happens, this happened to me and I, it could happen to other people. I don't know. But I think that when your economic circumstances vary differently from like what you've always known, there can probably be a little bit of a period of time, at least, like I said, at least there was for me. So 
you know, no judgment out there. Maybe everyone's different, but where I had to figure out a little bit about who I was again, because yeah, because I, I don't know, a, as I had access to all this stuff, I kind of, I think I kind of lost who I was a little bit or lost, I don't know, a little bit of my essence and had trouble figuring out how do I, how do I maintain all the same things that I, that I, that I am, but with this like very different capacity to have access to things that are everywhere. And that could be either everything from like eating, right? What happens when all of a sudden you can eat out at the best restaurants every single night at, you know, and, and it doesn't matter, right? Then you eat like a fucking pig, you know, you eat like shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, uh, so I had like rain back in those excesses. That's interesting. I'm glad you said that. There was, I remember there was a six month period where I had to essentially keep reminding myself. Well, it was really my wife letting me know that, hey, you can relax. You made it. And so, but then it was, how do I understand that I'm successful, but stay myself? And like, what's, how, what do successful people do? Like I just, and then how do I feel like I'm more successful so I can go and take on bigger and bigger things in my life and think bigger. And there was such a, a weird duality kind of happening inside of me of like trying to stay like, no, I'm not like, I'm really not I'm trying to hang on to this image of me. And I don't want to become this douchebag that I like see around me all the time in LA. It was a really, really interesting six month period of my time. And I tried some things on for size. And like, there was one time I said something that was like kind of braggy. And I just said, holy shit, that's not me. That was just awful. I can't believe I said that. That just came out. I don't know who that was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, no, that's not gonna, that's not gonna be me. I think you said the best code. I had to rediscover who I was. And I think that I think there's so many people too, when you see other people being successful, they oftentimes don't behave in the best ways. And so sometimes I think that people, as they start to achieve success, think they have to start to become like that like the Karens of the worlds, right? Like calling the manager every time, right? Uh, and and listen, I'm not saying that I like, I, you know, that that I'm the best in the world on this, but I think I figured it out pretty early on. I was like, whoa, that I just am doing that because I think that's what successful people do, not actually because it's what they do do. Yeah, if you call the manager every time, you're the worst kind of people. You're the worst kind of people, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not gonna do business, yeah. I used to be a, I used to be a server in college, a waiter in college. And so I have a, like a, I have a, I have a soft spot in my heart for waiters. Same. Yeah. You get it. I was a bus boy. Same thing. Like I, I've been treated poorly. Like once you, once you're there, like you, you, you understand it and empathize with people. Valet drivers have a very special place in my heart. When I take people out, I was like watching how they treat people. We have this buddy, Posh. I don't know if you've ever gone out to eat or places with Jack, our buddy Jack. He's like, he's like a royal lord the way he treats people. I mean, he's just so kind and it's crazy. You know, he just thank you and please and all that stuff. And you really see his heart in those situations because it doesn't matter whether it's somebody that you wouldn't normally say thank you to, like just a doorman opening the door uh, in New York City, for example, which oftentimes you wouldn't, you know, you'd just be walking, you'd be talking, you wouldn't think to say thank you. And he'll stop and turn and like say thank you to that person. And I just, it really, I think it really said a lot about him as a person. I went out to a nice dinner once with an investor who was going to put half a million dollars into a deal, treated the servers like absolute trash, was sending stuff back. And at the end, I told them that we are never going to do business together. I love that, by the way. Wow. It's amazing. I paid for the meal, but I said, I said, to be honest with you, I just, I won't, we won't be doing any deals. Like you're not allowed to do deals. So. Just, just like like-minded people, man. Yeah. Sometimes I, I do take dishes back. It's like they overcooked a steak. I'm gonna be like, I'm so sorry, but like, no, there's a way. There's a way. There's a way to do it. You know. <laughs> 
there's a reasonable and polite way to do it. And then there's like yelling at people in a, in a public restaurant. It's like talking to a waiter, like, hey, man, I know you didn't cook it. I know it's not your fault, but I really wanted a medium rare steak. You know, do you mind taking this back? And the waiter's probably gonna be like, oh, yeah, man, no worries. I also didn't want a well done steak. Um, so I get it, you know, but versus being an asshole to him. This is such an important topic because it's how you do the little things is how you do the big thing, right? It's like so fucking true in, in, in all facets of life. I think it's, man, figuring out figuring out what the essence of the person that you want to be is highly underrated. And it's unfortunate that I think sometimes sometimes you don't figure it out till it's too late. Sometimes you don't figure it out till you're like, till you already kind of made it. But if you can figure it out like along that journey or before you've kind of hit that period, I don't think you have to go through that, you know, that little bit of period. But I think it's it's harder than it sounds, right? Because you don't- Your core values. You know, once you establish what your core values are, like the rest of you will kind of, I figured like it'll mold over time, right? You might go through some period periods where like, oh, I want to buy a bunch of cool shit or whatever. Like, but at the same time, as long as your core values remain like, hey, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to treat people with respect. I want to do business with like-minded people. Like, you know, whatever your core values are, are really important. And I talk about that a lot with like picking business partners too. Whoever you work with in life and your business partners, like it's so important to pick partners with like-minded core values because you're going to make similar decisions in good and bad scenarios. Whereas I've had partners that have whack values or I don't say whack, right? Different from mine, right? I'm not saying mine are the only good values, but they had different values and the way they operated and the decisions they make just did not click with the way that I operate. And so, you know, just didn't work out. I have the partners now that I do because they, they were working with um, another partner who just slammed tenants, just slammed them with huge hundred hundred percent raises and didn't care about doing any improvements and didn't care. And they're just like, you know, at the end of the day, I can't, you know, luckily my partners are with me now because I think they're incredible. But yeah, I mean, they just are like, hey, we just don't align with these these values at all. So there's an ethical way to do business. Yeah, I, I do want to ask you, and I'm I'm going to pivot a little bit here. And so you had mentioned that you made a lot of big mistakes that humbled you. You're a very humble guy. And what are some of those things that you know that you can, if you want to share, right? And, but they, they all become a triumph story later on, but we all learn from our mistakes. Yeah, I kind of alluded to one with like the software, right? That was kind of just getting punched in the face from the get. That's the Charlie Munger. Uh, man, what is his? There's, I wish I could find it. I won't be able to search it, but maybe we'll, maybe we'll put it in the show notes or something. But he's a thing that he talks about. He tells a story with Warren about basically a really, really smart businessman in one area who thought his skills would be just perfectly transferred over to another. But it's it's actually really hard, right? It's really hard. And I, I got kicked in the face. I got kicked in the face too, going from software to real estate. So I feel you. 100%, man. And I I mean, shout out to the founders who get it done from the start, who are starting with like nothing. Like I'm, I'm fortunate that I did it once I had already had a lot of success in real estate and made money there. So, you know, I've been able to support it. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, but it didn't phase me at all. So I think that's something you've got to learn as business owners. Like, yeah, maybe I flushed 60 grand down the toilet, you know, with that first company, but I believed in the idea enough to be like, right away, I'm, go I'm going, I'm still going, I'm not going to stop. Like, screw it. 60 grand is nothing if we're going to sell this company for 200 million in the future. Like, you keep pushing. But I mean, dude, I've made, a, you know, like some I did recently. I'm so used to doing value at apartment deals where we just do flooring cabinets, countertops, appliances, like so 
service level stuff, right? You don't need to pull permits for that stuff. So I did my first like gut apartment job. Uh, I was on a 16 unit here in Austin. I'm actually sitting in it right now. I live in it. I'm house hacking. Uh, and we took these C-class apartments. Original plan was to do, you know, the finish work, right? Nothing crazy, but I get into them and then I decide like we want to sell these as condos eventually. So I'm like, okay, if I want to sell these as condos, I need to do everything. So I tell my contractor, my GC, I'm like, just pull the walls out, pull the electrical out, redo it, redo the plumbing. I didn't pull any permits. Fortunately, or unfortunately, the city of Austin is terrible to deal with. Fortunately, they flagged us, obviously, because they saw it, but they flagged us. They, but it was good because they're like, you can keep doing work, but you still have to go back and go through the entire permitting process. So I had already finished a couple of units. Uh, so basically delayed us for like six or seven months of going back and doing engineering drawings, you know, plans, two rounds of permit revisions. Finally, we're back. We're going full speed ahead. So a project that probably should, should have taken me 14 months is going to take me 20 months months. Uh, but you know, it's, it's just me and like two other three other partners on this one, which is fine. So it is what it is. But big learning experience, my mortgage is 18,000 a month. So you know, it's like 110,000 $108,000 in mortgage payments, uh, in addition, which adds on to the project cost. But you know, you live and you learn. And now I've got a good set of engineers and designers, if I need to do a project like this, again, we can go put some plans together, I understand the submission process, what they're going to look for. So I've been through the ringer, and then you learn from it and you got to move on and but it was uh development's a whole different animal i will never do development again there's a reason why you should earn you know 25 percent irr on development and you only get 15 percent on a value add right it's a different animal different risk profile different headache developers deserve their fees when they get paid <laughs> it's more like a migraine than a headache yeah <laughs> it's like a migraine <laughs> oh man we um we had a hotel that got hit by Hurricane Ian, leveled. Uh, it was on Sanibel Island Beachfront Hotel. Got built in the 60s. So it just got absolutely leveled. And I'm learning about development as we go. It wasn't, we didn't expect it to be a development deal. We expected it to be, we were renovating it. And it was an awesome little deal. And then it just got leveled. And uh, we're learning all about how to do ground up development. And it is totally different game. It is not fun. No, the worst part about ours, I will say, I mean, it's both a blessing and a curse. It's, it's an amazing lesson, but this was built as a, this was all set up as a value add deal. So we're now developers with no development fee, <laughs> but spending an immense amount of time developing. Unbelievable. Without any, without any, oh man, it is, it is. Did your insurance, your insurance covers the development cost though and everything you had good enough insurance in place? Yeah, yeah. So the insurance will cover, long story short, we will be, we'll probably end up spending 15% more uh, total project cost than we thought, but we'll be getting a brand new hotel. Nice. Yeah, that, no, that'll be really nice. Dude, and that's something that happens a lot. Like people, I built, um, I've only done one development deal. I built a 50 unit ground up here. We, through COVID, I bought lumber within 10% of the peak. I bought, I had to buy lumber. So that fucked us. Cause like, what are we going to do? We're going to wait and just delay it and keep paying our payments. Or like, are we going to move forward? We don't know if it's coming down or going to keep going up. So uh, we bought them like close to the peak. Yeah, it was bad. It took probably 10 months longer too with all the, you know, we were waiting on like transformers for our power for like eight months, dude, before we could even do that and get our CFOs. I mean, it was terrible, but still a good project in the end. Took way longer than it should have. But uh, again, you, you learn. And what I learned is I don't want to be a developer anymore. <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
I am a value add guy. I'm a value add guy. But on the insurance topic, like we got an insurance policy and I have some partners on that deal. And I just, I, I do, I do an annual insurance audit because again, I've heard horror stories. I mean, it happens like, and I've done it too, where it's like we get insurance and it's actually underinsured. So like that project, they had the square footage wrong when they insured it. They had like 32,000 square feet. It's 48,000 square foot building. And so the replacement cost is like 6 million. I'm like, this needs to be like nine and a half million. And so if we got hit by a tornado, or leveled in a hurricane, it, you know, it's not enough. So every year now I go through, I do a little annual insurance audit, look at the values, I look at the, you know, the replacement cost. Especially if you've owned something for a long time, right? You know, the replacement cost 20, you know, 15 years ago when you got insured is, or 10 years ago, seven years ago, right? Yeah, it's way different. It's way different than today. It's a good process. David, I think we could have at least an easy another hour just getting into the weeds with everything with you, but we are biting up to the time. All the mistakes we've made. That could that could be a whole podcast of all the mistakes. All the idiot things we've done along the way. A lot. It would be a lot. But if anyone wanted to find you, understand what you're doing, find REL Labs, how do they find you? How do they uh, get in contact with you? If anybody wants to supercharge their underwriting and pro forma process. I will say that you do have a great underwriting process. Anyone who ever comes to me that wants to learn multifamily, they're like, hey, how do we do it? I do two things. Go to Rod Cleef's events, because that's just the way I did it, and go learn your pro formas and how you do it, because you have a lot of free information out there, and it's incredible. And then you're set. A lot of free videos and stuff. I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. Best ways, realestatelab.com is our acquisition software for any investors out there. Uh, and then if you want to follow me or hit me up, normally Instagram's the best, David Tupin or at Real Estate Jedi, which, Kasha, I feel like I have to give you credit for that brand because like you were the first one like five years ago. You always called me Yoda. And I've always been a Star Wars fan too. And I'm like, Real Estate Jedi. And that's just stuck. And now everyone calls me right now. So see, I changed your life. So thank you. <laughs> no, yeah, of course. But thank you, David. I really appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Uh, thanks for being on. Appreciate you guys. Always. All right. So that's it for this episode of Road to 100. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes. And depending on where you're watching or listening to this, if you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then please make sure to leave us a five-star review because it truly helps new people to discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, then you can leave your comment below and ask any questions, insights, or thoughts about the episode. Thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button.